Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast for those who are not listed in the IPL Mega Auction, so for all but 590 of you. I'm your host, Benny, and if you haven't been tuning in recently, we have been nominated for the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards in the Best Cricket Podcast category. So if you enjoy this podcast, please visit sportspodcastawards.com, register, and vote for us. Now, our episode this week is a long one. Well, longer than usual, at least. It it is a deep dive into the state of cricket in the United States, and uh, we explore the unique challenges that the game has faced and continues to in its longstanding attempts to go mainstream. More to the point, we ask the question, can athletes from the big four sports in the United States be repurposed to develop high-quality cricketers? So to break this down and more, who better to speak with than longtime U.S. cricket observer, ESPN Cricket Info U.S. correspondent and host of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, Peter Della Pena. Now, before we get into that, I do have to check in with my co-host, Mike. And Mike, what is on your mind this week? Uh, so there's been a lot going on with Justin Langer and, and Cricket Australia. Um, and, you know, it, it's obviously it's easy for us as not, uh, you know, as Indian fans to look at these things a little bit dispassionately, but it's very interesting how things have turned because in my opinion, six months ago, there was no way Justin Langer was going to last. And now we've come across a time where they've, they've shocked everyone by winning the T20 World Cup. The Ashes was more or less predictable. I think nobody really expected England to compete. Maybe it was a little more one-sided than some expected, but it was always expected to go Australia's way. And now we have people like Ricky Ponting coming out and saying it's incredible how badly Cricket Australia has managed this and there's no way Langer should have gone. Um, and, and the real story is he was offered a six-month extension, which he rejected. He thought that was not right. Um, in my mind, considering all the issues that have happened, whether it's with managing players, his working style, there's been a lot of feedback that's been given to him. It's, it's clear that you know even though they had the results, the environment in the dressing room wasn't the best. And I am a firm believer that you put your you know, best 15 or best 20 players as the key focus and everyone else, including the head coach revolves uh, according to that. You know, we don't have to make adjustments to the playing 15 or you know, the players to adjust to a coach. And, and that's why I, I was completely okay with Anil Kumble getting sagged, for example, when India did that. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting turn of events. I don't think six months ago anybody would have bet outrage when Langer would have been sagged. Um, so yeah, I find it super odd. Uh, but I guess that's how that's how things turn with the results. And that's the nature of international cricket too, right? Like you said, yeah, after the after that tour of Bangladesh where Australia, you know, lost a bunch of games and all these low scoring games. Um, there was a lot of talk about how Justin Langer was just hard to work with and he was just blowing up at everyone and having these meltdowns and it seemed like the writing was on the wall uh, but then it's hard to argue against him when he's coached the team to their first ever world uh, T20 World Cup win and then a very very comprehensive Ashes win which I really think should have been 5-0 if it wasn't for weather um, but it is fascinating to me uh, because I'm looking at it from a different angle. Um, 
because again, with a lot of information is still coming out. We don't know enough, and I'm sure you know we'll hear lots of leaks and whatever. Um, but I was reading the comments by Ricky Ponting, uh, which you mentioned. Uh, now, to be fair, Ricky Ponting is managed by the same agent that manages Justin Langer, and they're also very close friends. So take it with a pinch of salt. Uh, but even otherwise, you know, I've been seeing like Australian fans' reactions. Um, and I also saw this article about, uh, read this article about Mitchell Johnson, who's just been uh, pretty much a blistering attack against Pat Cummins. You know, Pat Cummins is like the flavor of Australian cricket now, and he can do no wrong. But Mitchell Johnson essentially blasted him saying that he may have been very good in the ashes, but as a leader, he has failed. Um, you know, his first big test of managing his or keeping his teammates under check He's pretty, man, it's pretty much failed in that regard because this is an example of player power um, essentially overruling a successful coach. And I was looking at all of this and I was thinking, man, this I doubt this would happen in Indian cricket because like, uh, you know, we talk about Anil Kumble, uh, that whole fracas, you know, like it is essentially, it boiled down to Virat Kohli versus Anil Kumble. And sure, from the Indian fans' perspective, there were people who fell on both sides uh, of the issue and or fell into both camps. But overall, the sentiment, at least among ex-Indian cricketers or media, was well, it's Kohli's team, and you know he should get what he wants. So I'm just fascinated by this sporting culture differences uh where in australia it's more about the team so it doesn't matter if you won the world cup if you're not gelling with the players you know you gotta go i mean that's the stance taken essentially by cricket australia whereas with the indian team it's like well i mean again now it's different right now under gongli it's probably different but back then it, it was like well the captain should get what he wants so i was just fascinated by that stark contrast because I feel like if in India if Justin Langer had coached India to the T20 World Cup and had won let's say a comprehensive series against Pakistan and uh, he's assured of his job for as long as he wants it and that's obviously not the case in Australia yeah yeah and I, I've not read all the details around Mitchell Johnson's comments but I always find it funny when former players cry about po player power uh, they've, they've been in these situations this has happened during their time yeah yeah but they just see things differently once they're not in that position. But anyways, um, it's 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 interesting. Yeah, I think there's some similarities to the Anil Kumble situation uh, where there were a number of players in the Indian team who didn't necessarily get along. But but yeah, uh, I think that's the nature of, you know, professional work. I guess you'd never really get along with everyone anyways. But finishing that topic up, um, what's on your mind? So the thing that's been on my mind these past few days is actually something not related to cricket. It is related to sport, but uh, it is not cricket because I have been watching this fascinating documentary on ESPN called Man in the Arena. I don't know if you have heard about it, but it's essentially a nine-part series on Tom Brady, uh, the NFL quarterback, longtime New England Patriots quarterback who just announced his retirement, I think, in the past week but this documentary came out a couple of months ago and i was just catching up with it and and here's the thing i'm i'm not very knowledgeable about american football uh, my closest experience was when i worked at heinz field in pittsburgh uh very briefly you know uh, for the steelers pittsburgh steelers home games and i used to like watch nfl games for free 
uh, from the stadium, having no clue what was going on, but just soaking in the experience. So that is all that that is really the extent of my knowledge about American football. Uh, but what fascinated me about this documentary was, you know, we're taking a look at the life and career of probably one of the best football players um, in the NFL. And it was, you know, it was, you know, to be fair, it was produced by Tom Brady. So you got to be, uh, you got to kind of take a step back. You know, it's not going to be very, you know, it's not going to like focus on all his faults, but it did focus on his, you know, his low moments and criticisms against him and all his fair share of controversies that he's had. And even as someone who's not very knowledgeable about American football, I found that a very good, it was an in-depth look at his career right from the time he started uh, to the end. And I was left thinking, we don't have good documentaries on cricket. I mean, sure, there was the, uh, uh, what is it called, the test? Uh, the Cricket Australia produced documentary. <laughs> so again, it, it's a bit of a mix of propaganda and actual good production values, but it, it does not give, so for example, that whole issue, right? Like when Cricket uh, Australia was coming out of that scandal in South Africa with the whole ball tampering issue, they did not really, you know, talk to the players as far as how did they feel about it. Nobody uh, had a conversation with Steve Smith or David Warner. Uh, it was more about Justin Langer and how they're going to remold this team, how rebuild this team. It was very superficial. And we talk about that as one of the better documentaries in cricket. Um, and I don't even want to mention any other documentaries produced in India or even South Africa for that matter, which is all, you know, it's all very nice and sweet. And it's always a story of the triumphs and all of that. But I think cricket has lacked a very good documentary that, has good balance, right? It's not just about the highs, it's also about the lows. Like I wish someone does a documentary in the future on someone like Virat Kohli, like not just his exploits on the field, but has uh, a look at the fair share of controversies that he's had and actually talk to him about how did he feel and what was his viewpoint? Because in this, in this documentary, Man in the Arena, like Tom Brady addresses a couple of controversies uh, in his career, which Essentially, you know, it came close to tarnishing his legacy. You know, people were calling him a cheat and people were calling him all sorts of things. And he takes that head on and he speaks from the heart. And I was thinking, we don't see enough of that in cricket. We see highly polished interviews and everything is very sanitized and uh, we don't really get a deep understanding of what actually went on. So all we're left is with leaks. We're left with our own assumptions and stories driven by agendas. And I... I'm still waiting for a good, high-quality documentary uh, on cricket and especially cricketers, you know, that does a deep dive into where they come from and what are the challenges that they face. And cricketers were honest enough to talk about some of their lowest moments in their career. Yeah, I, I think that's a really fair point. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think there's a lot of interesting series and, and careers in cricket which are documentary-worthy. Um, I know that they, they came out with something for the uh, GABA win, and actually not the, just the GABA win, but India's uh, win in Australia uh, last year, but I, I think I haven't had a chance to see that because it's not been available in the U.S. Um, right. I think the broader issue, though, is I don't think cricket is good at marketing, and, and yeah. maybe I'm just comparing it to American sports, which are incredible about marketing. 
Uh, I mean, there's literally, you know, they have tie-ups with, you know, Wingstop and Domino's and XYZ on Super Bowls and, and all kinds of, you know, sporting days where they're like, hey, you do, you buy a ticket to the game and you get this free if you come walk in and show us your ticket. And, and I think that level of marketing is just fantastic in the US. And that uh, sort of extends itself into this, into the point that, um, they know that creating these documentaries, even if you know they may not show 100% of of the truth, builds on that brand. And I don't think that's un- that understanding is there in cricket. Or even if it is, they don't really care for it because there's enough money without that. Especially in you know the subcontinent, I think uh, Australia and England probably do a little bit better in terms of marketing. But India in particular, if you think about it, I think Siddhartha Vedanathan tweeted this um, some time ago that. In 2001, India and Australia played probably the most iconic test match in Kolkata. And since then, Australia's come back, I think, four times to, the, to India to play test cricket. They've not played a single game at Kolkata. And just imagine the ability to build on that, to market that, is, there's so much potential there. And I think that is where cricket is, is definitely missing, um, missing that you know, marketing knowledge and, and ability to just Uh, build up the rivalry and I think these documentaries would go a long way with that. I wonder if it speaks into this larger issue um, of culture again going back to that because in the U.S. having 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 lived here long enough I can see that uh, while sports persons are you know in a bubble uh, of their own they don't necessarily escape uh, the spotlight um, or criticisms right just because they're star players doesn't mean they're not going to get um, criticisms or, you know, fans hating them. I mean, Tom Brady, for all his exploits, is uh, equally hated as much as he's loved by Patriots fans. Um, and so that enables a very honest look at their career. And yes, you're, you're right about the marketing and uh, just the way these documentaries are produced is they know that American viewers are not just going to be happy with someone just praising Tom Brady for 40, 45 minutes straight. Because a lot of these episodes um, really, uh, they they actually interview not just people that he played with and not just his spouse, not just his family. They also like interview his opposition, you know, people that he played against, people that didn't necessarily like him. So they're not coming in to say, oh, Tom Grady is the best guy that I played against. I mean, you talk to any current international player about Virat Kohli, guess what? They'll always say the same thing. Oh, Virat Kohli is the greatest, you know, but behind the scenes or, you know, they'll whisper like, oh, he's a prick. Uh, he's annoying. Right. But they won't they won't admit that in a public forum for various reasons that we don't have enough time to get into. Um, so I feel like that honest approach is missing in cricket. And I wonder if it all boils down to culture. Uh, the main difference that I see it as that you know, American audiences, they don't care. They just want the complete picture of who the athlete is and they're and they're willing to like listen and they're willing to watch it without getting flustered about it. I feel like, for example, if we had a documentary on someone like a Sachin Tendulkar or Virat Kohli, and then if we focus on any negative aspects, you know, they're, I mean, they're human and they have, you know, they may have made some mistakes, but if anybody focuses on that, it becomes this, you know, this, oh, you're anti-Coley and you hate him. That's why this is this agenda. So it just feels like as an audience, we are not ready for that. And I feel like we need to make an effort. I hope there are aspiring documentary 
makers, filmmakers who are bold enough and hope uh, equally, I hope that cricketers and people who work in, you know, these cricket teams are willing to like step forward and just give an honest, you know, take or honest opinion on all that's happened because that helps the cricket fans understand what's going on behind the scenes rather than relying on their own assumptions and, you know, relying on leaks and all of those. So I don't know. I, I just watched that documentary and I kept thinking, man, we need something like this in cricket. It was, I mean, as, even, even as someone who doesn't understand much about the game, uh, who doesn't understand much about the NFL, just seeing like these honest conversations, these honest, you know, like what, what went through my mind during these darkest phases and these non-sanitized version, just very raw, honest look. Um, I, I think that's missing in cricket. We need more of that beyond just platitudes and like, oh yeah, this guy was a great competitor. I enjoyed playing, played against him. Uh, I wish there was some honest take and honest exploration of people's careers and like phases in a team's life. Uh, there's so much potential. Cricket has so many great stories that just need to be told in a very honest and raw way. So anyway, <laughs> but enough, enough of our own uh, thoughts and brands. Uh, we will get to our conversation with Peter Della Pena right after this brief message. Hey, y'all. This is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible array of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. So Peter, I was going to say that things seem to be trending in the right direction. For cricket in America, of course, we had a conversation, brief conversation offline about some of the things that are going behind the scenes. But but let's look at some of the more recent developments, right? So the minor league cricket, uh, the first season was completed last year. Uh, it's a major league planned for 2023, and the American Cricket Enterprise, and uh, they are planning to invest about a billion dollars. Um, that's a really large number. I hope that's true. And of course, the United States is also sharing hosting responsibility for a T20 World Cup. So as someone who has followed this, uh, followed U.S. cricket closely for a number of years, um, I feel like I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Are you optimistic about the state of the game in the U.S.? Well, there are a number of ways to answer this question, but I think one of the best ways for me to do so is to take one sequence, one 24 to 36 hour sequence 
in U.S. cricket to highlight the nature of the U.S. cricket environment. Board CEO, USA Cricket Board CEO Ian Higgins resigns after about two years in the role in late last year. Okay. And a day or two later, USA is announced by the ICC as a co-host of the T20 World Cup with the West Indies. So you have chaos, you have uncertainty, and that can be both good and bad, all happening almost simultaneously. And that's been the case for U.S. cricket for ever since I've been involved. I started reporting on U.S. cricket in 2009. And so you can take a glass half full view or you can take a glass half empty view. Which, which one do you want to take? A CEO resigning and what that re represents, the instability, the, the uh, doubts about leadership and what happens in that vacuum and what does that signal about what's going on in the board and behind the scenes? Or do you take the view of, hey, USA just got awarded co-hosting rights for a T20 World Cup and... Hmm would the ICC have really done that if they didn't have confidence and faith and some assurances in the level of management who is still in place there to be able to carry out the duties and responsibilities to have a smoothly run event in 2024. So that was a historic announcement, co-hosting rights, first time that USA is, is hosting a major ICC event or co-hosting it, but you have to balance that with some of the historic issues administratively where there always seem to be problems in the board and CEO resigns. USA Cricket is in a situation where they now have gone more than two years without having the constitutionally mandated elections, which poor governance was one of the main reasons why they were suspended by the ICC three times in 2005, 2007, and 2015. Okay. And this new governing body that was reconstituted. So USACA, the USA Cricket Association that had been in place since 1965, they were kicked out. And one of the reasons was because of bad governance, bad leadership, doubts about election improprieties, Okay, and these were all cited as key reasons why the ICC lost faith in USACA's ability to be the steward of cricket governance in America. And the promise was that when this new governing body was formed, one of the key rallying points from the ICC, their messaging was that we want a new governing body that will unite the cricket community and that will be a governing body that the cricket community can have trust in and have faith in and will unite all these factions because it wasn't just USACA that was an issue. One of the other things that was cited was that they felt, the ICC felt that USACA did not represent the majority of the cricket community, which was true. USACA, at the time they were suspended, there were only 15 leagues that were members of USACA. And, and that was down from 47, part of what triggered the investigation with the ICC, there was a, an election process in 2012, where 32 out of the 47 member leagues at the time were disenfranchised through a very dubious audit process in which certain leagues were uh, deemed to be illegitimate leagues, 
even though they were fully functioning leagues. And one of the kind of reasons why that happened was because there was a, um, a secret or not so secret meeting that was held between board presidents where they were gathering to uh, establish whether or not they wanted to take a no confidence motion against Gladstone Dainty, the USAC president, and all the presidents and all the league presidents who were on this conference call what are the odds those are the same leagues and league presidents who magically became disenfranchised and were deemed to be illegitimate leagues when it came to vote several months later and what do you know gladstone dainty wins by unanimous 15 to nothing vote the election anyway but that was just the exact leagues then you had american cricket federation Mm-hmm. which had another group of leagues pledging their allegiance to them. You had Cricket Council USA. You had a number of different factions, okay? And so it wasn't just USACA. There were different factions, competing factions. And when USA Cricket was reconstituted in 2018 and 2019, the ICC's charter with the reconstitution of USA Cricket was, we want you to, we want to have a governing body that unites the cricket community. Well, they haven't really done that. And the yeah. lack of elections is a representation of that. If USACA had done that in the USACA era, it would have been uh, a sticking point for the ICC to step in and suspend them. We know that because they did. They haven't said a peep. They've right. just awarded USA the co-hosting of a, two, uh, a 2020 World Cup in spite of the fact that their governance has gotten so has deteriorated to the point where they've not held elections that they were supposed to held over the past two but years. Is that because the lure of a country like a major country, not even forget the cricketing aspect of it, but a country like the United States hosting a major cricket tournament, do you think that's more appealing to the ICC administrators than actually worrying about all these issues relating to governance? Well, it's always been the Holy Grail in the ICC. Yeah. The ICC used to be USA and China. And now more or less, it's just the USA. They've kind of abandoned the Chinese ambitions. Mm-hmm. And now they've fully focused most of their attention on the USA in terms of that holy grail. And why? Because of money. Okay, they're, they're looking to get money. They want to get as much money as possible out of the US market. If you look at viewership data and also significantly ticket sales data, for a couple of uh, recent World Cups. So 2015 World Cup in Australia, New Zealand, and the 2019 World Cup in England. I have been told by several officials that the number one source of uh, ticket sales purchases outside of the host countries is America, okay? Mm -hmm. And these are not people, obviously, who are supporting American cricket or right. who are in love with the USA national team, because if they went to the USA national team page on Crick Info every day, my salary would be double or triple what it currently is. <laughs> so I know they're not going to the USA page. Okay. These are all fans who support India, Pakistan, England, Australia, the West Indies, whatever. You've got a huge yeah. expatriate fan base in the US, obviously. So when there's an India-Pakistan match at lords or at edgbiston or, or wherever the india pakistan matches or india pakistan match at the uh, mcg okay where are the most people flying in from they're not flying in from india or West, pakistan yeah. they're flying in from america I, I can't tell you how many stories i've seen written um where the angle has been taken by the writer 
that, oh my God, the, the passionate fans of Indian Pakistan, so-and-so flew in from Chicago, so-and-so flew yeah. in from, so-and-so flew from Chicago to, to Melbourne, so-and-so flew I from I read Los a bunch Angeles of those, yeah. Yeah. And um, because you've got these studies that have been done, Columbia University did a famous one back in 2009 or 2008, which showed, I think it was 70 or 71% of cricket fans in America are six-figure earners who have a postgraduate degree, whether it be a master's or a PhD or um, some other business or, or medical degree. Okay, and these these are people who, so they're highly educated, have a excessive amount of surplus income, disposable income that they can spend on cricket. They're not spending it on American cricket. They're spending it to, to watch uh games world cup matches india pakistan they're either flying to these games i can't tell you how many u.s board members again uh board members who have told me stories there's one board member in particular who never shuts up about how at 48 hours notice he bought a ticket to go i, I forget if it was durban or johannesburg to the 2003 world cup match between india and pakistan and he bought a business class ticket and he got uh, you know, paid whatever was the equivalent $500 US to get two tickets to go to um, India versus Pakistan because he he knows Indranoi and, uh, you know, he starts name dropping all these people that he, he's got connections with <laughs> and they, you know, so-and-so helped him get tickets. And so he saw, I, you know, I spent, you know, business class tickets, I spent more than $15,000 just for a 48 hour trip to go to South Africa for the 2003 World Cup to watch India Pakistan. And I, I, I listen not politely hear this story. And I say, oh, you spent $15,000 just for a weekend to go watch Indy Pakistan. How much money have you spent flying to USA matches over the years in your time as a USA board member? And then they shut up because they know the answer is zero. <laughs> they, don't, they don't fly to go watch the USA matches that they're a USA board member for. And they're supposed to be these stewards of American cricket. They don't care. And that's, that's that, hey, if you love Indian Pakistan that much, more power to you. You want to go to those games? Uh, go to those games. Nobody's stopping you from buying tickets and supporting those games. But all that data is very, very misleading in terms of what it represents in terms of the interest in the American cricket market. Yeah. So the ICC sees that. They know that people have deep pockets in America, people who are residing in America, and they're willing to spend money on on cricket if they're living in America. The Willow TV subscription numbers are huge. Again, outside of India, I'm pretty sure the number one um, viewership base for cricket outside of in terms of revenue generating viewership base outside of India is America. You get you get just as much traffic to Crick Info. Uh, out of England, the, the number number one traffic for Crick Info is out of India. They, that gets, generates right. the most unique kids, most traffic, whatever. But number two, generally speaking, neck and neck, is between the UK and America. Um, the US market generates more traffic to Crick Info and more viewership for international cricket than Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Sri Lanka combined. Okay, and and you have to again take in, into consideration those populations. Generally speaking, are small. Okay, you think, yeah, they're fanatical about cricket, huge, uh, thriving cricket cultures, but huge in what context? Australia is a country of 24 million people. 
if you've got this mythical 15 million to 20 million cricket fans in America out of a country of 335 million, even though that's 5% of the American population, if that's true, that's still the entire population of Australia or close to it, right? So you take all these things into consideration. So why do you have a World Cup in America? It's not because it's, it's generally speaking, I think the, the hope at face value is that it's going to help grow American cricket, but that's the evidence is not there to support that. Okay. You'll, you'll get, again, the second point, all, all these um, discussions and reasons why these things are done. Everybody always talks about it. You know, the mythical India Pakistan match in America. Oh, if you, if you had India Pakistan at Yankee stadium, if you had India Pakistan at, at the Rose bowl or AT&T stadium in Dallas, Oh my God, you have a hundred thousand people. You could sell it out five times over. No shit. If you had India Pakistan at Lourdes, it sells out. If you have India Pakistan at the MCG, it sells out. If you have India Pakistan in Switzerland, you know, in in uh, sub zero temperatures, it's going to sell out. India versus Pakistan should not be the measuring stick about how or why an event succeeds. Your measuring stick for a successful event and determining whether or not there is growth and future stability for the growth of, of cricket and trajectory for the growth of cricket in the country is not whether India Pakistan sells out. That's going to sell out anywhere. It's whether or not you can sell out Ireland versus Zimbabwe in Dallas. It's whether or not you can sell out Sri Lanka versus Afghanistan in Florida. Can you sell out USA versus Sri Lanka? Okay. Uh, at the same venue in Florida where there were 15,000 people to watch India versus West Indies in 2019 in Waterhill, there were 13,000 people, roughly they kept attendance at 13,000, 12,900, whatever it was. Okay. That was in August, 2019, five weeks later at the very same venue, there were 19 people, one at nine to watch USA's first ever ODI on home soil against Papua New Guinea. Now you can say, oh, well, it's Papua New Guinea. Who gives a shit? Okay. Of course it's not going to buy tickets, but that's not the point. These same fans who flew from New York, from Dallas, from Chicago, from San Francisco, who've got all the deep pockets, who love cricket, who live in America, are not fans of American cricket. They are fans of cricket who live in America, but they're not fans of American cricket. There's a very subtle but yeah. very important difference there. And I so, like, uh, I feel yeah. like you need star players to kind of change the situation. Like, seem like Afghanistan has Rashid Khan. I think when he came kind of like really came or came with the came out with a bang you know when he first appeared on you know the radar so to speak that really put afghanistan cricket like you know in everyone's sight and i felt that brought more attention on team on a team like afghanistan but but i think i think benny that I, I i see your point and i think even peter i've heard your story of how you got into cricket and there was ash 2005 and it being a good competition helped and I, I see that point that having a good competition helps and it makes it more interesting. And I think that's true for me as well. Like if the if a men's test match is going on, I'd watch that over a women's test match just because it's generally more competitive. But uh, but I think the point is, I don't think the, most of these fans even follow US cricket to know whether you know US versus West Indies is going to be competitive or not. And I think that is the bigger problem. Like if they followed and they said, oh, this is not a close game, U.S. versus Papua New Guinea, then sure, that's still a reasonable decision. Well, the closest thing that USA has had to a superstar in recent times would be Ali Khan. Right. 
superstar franchise bowler exploded on the scene in the CPL with Trinbago Night Riders. Was drafted up into the Calcutta Night Riders squad in 2020 for the IPO when it was held in the UAE. Yeah. Okay, that's the highest echelon player USA has ever had. When Ali Khan was playing for Trinbago Night Riders in 2018, when they played in Florida, when the CPL was still having matches in Florida, was that moment a rallying point for uh, American cricket fans to come to Florida? to support their hometown hero in a sense who was now spreading the gospel and, and giving an elevated reputation to USA on a much wider stage. No, <laughs> there were not hordes of quote, quote, American cricket fans who came out waving flags and wearing Ali Khan jerseys in right. Waterhill. The only fans who were there, there was a, that weekend, there was about 2,000, 2,100 fans for the Trinbago Night Runners game. And that was kind of red flag as regards to the, the popularity of the CPL and why it really never came back after 2018, after the third year. It was there from 2016 to 2018. Because who, who came? It was for that game, you had a bunch of fans fly down from New York and from Toronto who were all part of the Trinidadian expat community who supported the Trinbago Night Runners. And for Guyana, the same thing. When the Guyana Amazon Warriors played, you get a, a ton of Guyanese expat fans from New York who would fly down or drive down and they would support those teams. But you had, again, to, to kind of reinforce the point I was making earlier, people were not there for Icon. But then you, you, you go fast forward a, a couple of days later into the midweek match, Jamaica Tawas versus Barbados Tridents. At the time, Jamaica Tawas, captained by Andre Russell, and Barbados Tridents featured Steve Smith, who was in exile after Sandpaper Gate. So he was on the T20 franchise circuit around the world because he couldn't play for Australia. He just come out of Canada for the global T20 Canada, him and David Warner in Canada for that. And then David Warner was in the CPL as well, although his side did not come to Florida that year. Only Steve Smith's side didn't. So Steve Smith, one of the biggest superstars in any format, playing in Florida, against Andre Russell, arguably the biggest T20 blockbuster star on the worldwide circuit, okay? On a Wednesday night in Florida, that match drew 700 people. And I know it was 700 people because I went around over the first three overs of the match to hand count the people in the stands because the stadium was so empty and it only took me three overs to count literally every single person that was in the seats. And it was quite pathetic, the scene. You could hear conversations on the field of play. The sounds were echoing across the outfield. The sounds were echoing across the seats. It was such a really funereal atmosphere at that event. And it underscored, again, you had two blockbuster stars in world cricket. Nobody cared. It didn't push the needle. Nobody bought tickets. The only bankable revenue generator that's been generated or that's been demonstrated on a consistent basis in the context of staging matches in America is India. If India is playing, that match is going to sell out, whether it's in Florida or New York or Texas or anywhere else. When Dhoni has come, when Kohli has come, those matches sell out. And the Cricket All-Stars, when the Cricket All-Stars charade, barnstorming bandwagon exhibition nonsense tour came in 2015. Okay, why did that tour sell out? Because of Sachin. Okay, yeah. if you have... 
if you have the exact same roster of players and you subtract Sachin, and to a lesser extent, if you also take out Saywag and VVS Lakshman and Ganguly, who are also part of the tour, Rahul Dravid decided to maintain his dignity and uh, passed that it event. Wasn't, wasn't okay. Shane Warren? Shane Warren was there too. But, but yeah. yeah. But this is my point. You could have the entire rest of the roster, okay? Shane Warren and Courtney Walsh and Lara and Wasim Akram and Murley. Yeah. Legends of the game. Uh, Alan Donald, Sean Pollock, Callis, all these guys were there. Nobody would have come. Sachin was what sold tickets because 90 to 95% of the fans, when I was walking around in the outfield in the stands and interviewing people, I, I went to those games, but I hardly watched the games, to be perfectly honest. Ricky Ponting was there, Matthew Hayden. Okay. I spent most of the games interviewing fans and trying to gauge who was in the audience who was coming to these games and who was buying tickets and 90 to 95% of the fans were Indian expat fans. Every so often in the crowd, I would come across somebody who was coming to their very first game, who was an American who typically was invited by an Indian friend of theirs, somebody who'd grown up in India and had seen all these guys in person. And this was a nostalgic event, reliving childhood memories of watching Sachin at, um, you know, the wine Katie or Eden Gardens yeah. or whatever, yeah. right? It was all about nostalgia, but, um, you know, one of the few things I do remember watching on field in those games was when there was a, a top edge pulled somewhere in the region of Midway or Square Lake, and Ganguly was the nearest fielder. This was in Houston at the game at um, Minute Maid Park, was the name of the stadium at the time where these Houston Astros played. And there was about 16 or 17,000 people there that game in a venue that holds 42,000 people. Top edge. And Ganguly lets it fall right at his feet. <laughs> no dive, no real effort to run for it or stretch out or anything. He's just half-assing it. And the crowd starts booing. There's an audible <laughs> Why? Because to get into these games, the nosebleed section ticket in the upper deck was like $125. To sit at the field level was $175 or $225 in these stadiums. They were paying, they were charging extortionate prices to watch the Legends of the Game put on a half-assed effort in many instances. Yeah, there were there was a few players who were still recently retired. Kumar Sengakar was the player of the series, and you understand why, because he was still 36, 37. He was still playing in a lot of other franchise leagues. He'd retired from Sri Lanka. But when you have a, a 36, 37-year-old fit Kumar Sengakar batting against a 50-plus-year-old Courtney Walsh bowling 65, 70 miles. I'll admit that was day. painful to watch. It was it was excruciating. <laughs> I, I, it was again, it was it was degrading, demeaning to some of these guys. Just people and I, I talked to some fans, and that was that was one of the messages that came across from the fans. Like, I'll pay for quality cricket. I don't. I feel like I got robbed here um, because I'm watching Alan Donald run in with both knees heavily strapped bending his back to bowl 65 miles an hour. This is not the Alan Donald that I remember of my youth. This is, yeah. this is tarnishing my memory of Alan Donald. This is tarnishing my memory of Courtney Walsh. This is tarnishing my memory of Kurt Lee Ambrose watching those guys coming to bowl. The, the spin bowlers, it was different. Shane Warren, Murley, um, Mushy, when they bowled a spin bowling at 45 or 50 years old, you're still coming in off four or five paces and that's not <laughs> going to be drastically different. 
for the yeah. baseballers who were yeah. bowling 90 miles an hour in their prime is very um not very dignified what was going on there um and so the, the point was to get back to, to the main point yeah who bought the tickets it was 95 percent indian fans who wanted to see sachin and you asked you asked everybody why are you here why did you buy a ticket i bought a ticket for sachin i bought a ticket for sachin no but i never heard a single person not one person say i bought a ticket for shane warren or i bought a ticket for matthew hayden yeah. um you might have a handful of people say they bought a ticket to see wasim akram okay but the and it wasn't again the indian fans it wasn't it wasn't i bought a ticket to see Sewak, or i bought a ticket to see lashman or i bought a ticket to see ganguly or i bought a ticket to see ajita garkar who was also part of that nobody was saying that <laughs> okay everybody was saying i bought a ticket to watch Sachin. so you take him out of that event and there have been events in florida these legends events where brian lara has played which might draw 500 people or a thousand people, if that in Florida. Okay. Um, in a 10,000 seat facility, that's, that's what's driving the ticket sales and the interest by and large the, the, you know, when, when the stadium, one of these new stadiums, you talked about the billion dollar investment in American cricket that ACE and major league cricket have, have pledged. Okay. When it, this new stadium development in Dallas, in Grand Prairie, Texas, suburb of Dallas was announced uh, towards the end of 2020, where they've acquired the um, lease on a former minor league baseball facility called Air Hogs Stadium. And the Air Hogs minor league franchise went out of business. So they've got this empty stadium looking for a tenant to take it up. Ace and, and Major League Cricket stepped up. They're going to convert it into a, a cricket facility, right? Spend $15 million on it, whatever. Okay. One of the things that was cited in that news conference was Willow TV, who the founders of Willow TV, Samir Mehta and Vijay Srinivasan, who um, Willow was founded 20 plus years ago uh, and is, is the number one provider of cricket rights content for people living in the US, for people who listen to this podcast who are not aware of what Willow TV is, started off as a broadband uh, online platform, willow.tv. You'd go to the website, you'd pay $200 for the World Cup or $50 for a, a series, $50 for the Ashes or $50 for India versus Pakistan. And they've built up and cultivated enough subscribers over 20 plus years that now the demand is there that instead of paying $200 for the World Cup or $300 for the year, it's now $9.99 a month or $60 for the year. It's a great value. And you get basically every cricket series imaginable is broadcast on the platform and every franchise league and international cricket, whatever. But anyway, so the, the co-founders of that, Samir Mehta and Vijay Srinivasan, are the guys who are behind ACE, Major League Cricket. And they were touting one of the reasons why they think this Air Hog Stadium will be successful as a choice of venue in Dallas is that they claim they've got over 250,000 Willow TV subscribers in between Houston and Dallas who are consuming cricket content on a regular basis. They've got all the, the billing credit card data info they, where they can track the zip codes of where all these people are buying Willow TV content from. All these zip codes, 250,000 of them between Houston and uh, Dallas metro areas. Okay. And they say, oh, we've got 250,000 people. We know there's demand for cricket, cricket lovers in this geographic zone. And that's why we think having a major league cricket franchise here and seizing the rights for this facility is going to be a wise investment for us. Okay. 250,000 people watching cricket content on Willow between those two cities, two major metropolitan areas in Texas. Okay. Again, 
to beat a dead horse. They're watching India. They're watching Pakistan. They're watching the West Indies. At the USA Cricket National Championship, which was in Houston in November, and the Under-19 National Championship at the same venue in Houston in April of 2021, nobody was there. Zero fans showed up, and it wasn't because there were COVID restrictions. You have an event in Texas. You have an event in Florida. Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, come on down. No <laughs> such thing as COVID in Texas. No such thing as COVID in Florida. Everybody's welcome. No mask required, okay? So you can't blame the lack of attendance on COVID. Anybody could show up. No restrictions whatsoever, okay? The only people who showed up to the under-19 event, national championship, were the parents of about two dozen or so players who flew in to support their kids. And generally speaking, you do get much better attendance at under-19 events in U.S. domestic cricket for that reason, because there's more family involvement. The kids, everybody wants to support the kids. The national championship for the men, six months later, whatever it was, seven months later in Texas. And again, this is supposed to be the premier event for 50 over cricket championship in America with the best players in the U S national team, best players who are soon to qualify for the national team in terms of former international players. You had Saad Ali, former Pakistan international who scored a magnificent century uh, in that tournament on the first day. You had some of the newer arrivals from uh, former South African domestic pros like Ovis PNR and he scored a century and plenty of other players, you know, Saurabh Neshavalkar, former India under 19 players. Now at the time he was the U S captain, he, he's there and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Who showed up? Nobody showed up. They had, they had one fan show up one day. Okay. He, and it was very cold and there were no accommodations for any fans. And after an hour of freezing his ass off on what was an unseasonably cold day in Houston, he decided to get back in his car and drive home. Wow. So where were these 250,000 fans who supposedly love cricket and demonstrate it by being subscribers to Willow TV? They don't give a shit about American so, cricket. So Peter, so the TLDR version of this <laughs> is that as things stand, there isn't really too many reasons to be optimistic, but, and, and we'll, I'm sure Mike will ask this later, but I, I went on this American podcast earlier this week, and uh, it's like a sports and pop culture podcast. And they, they invited me because I'm the host of you know, a cricket podcast that's based in the US. And they said, hey, why don't you come and talk to us about cricket? And I spent an hour just kind of like laying out the rules, kind of like the history, then the rules and then like the teams and the different players. And by the end, there was one guy who said, this sounds way more interesting than baseball. Why don't we know more about this here? Right. So I feel like there's also this lack of that we're not penetrating like the mainstream audience. It's like right now, as you said, it's all restricted to Indian, like even Willow, like you say, you know, you're talking about Willow and the ads, they're all tailored towards Indian audiences. Zoom.com, Western Union, uh, Jyotish Frame. We're all familiar <laughs> with Jyotish Prem, for instance. So yeah, Prem Jyotish, Prem Jyotish, of course. <laughs> who, who could forget Prem Jyotish? Yeah. And for so, the people, people living outside the U.S., if you don't get that inside joke, you're missing out big time. Got to go watch Prem the Jyotish. ad if it's on YouTube. Um, but so that's the way to stretch it right now. Like everything about the game is just biased or is put in a way to make it more attractive to Indian or Indian origin viewers and 
I feel like we need to think outside the box. So Mike, I'll, I'll let you ask, you know, your question and we'll, that'll probably lead up to it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, just sort of moving on to sort of our main topic, you know, we've, there's been a long list of cricketers who've excelled at other sports and not just cricketers, athletes in general, um, uh, right from John D. Rhodes, Nathan Astle, uh, Elise Perry, and more recently, uh, Alex Carey, who, who started with, um, you know, Aussie rules football. So, um, and in the US, we know Michael Jordan tried his hand at baseball. So there've been athletes who've moved from one sport to another. And what's interesting about the US is this way the school and university structure is set up. Um, there are sports for each, uh, there's season for each sport. And uh, I, I have friends who played, you know, baseball during the during even semesters and then played football during the fall. And obviously it depends on where you are. But with that said, do you think there's a really good opportunity of trying to find some other athletes who are already gifted, um, say, you know, talented baseball players to get them to at least try cricket and that way start spreading the word and, you know, to Benny's point, penetrating the U.S. market? I think it would be a much more successful initiative in female sports than it would be in male sports. Now, there's a couple of reasons why. First off, the player pools and the player participation talent pools for men's cricket in America versus women's cricket in America, there is a humongous disparity. Men's playing pool, depending on what data sources you believe, there are anywhere from 20,000 to 150, 200,000 amateur players all around America who are playing any combination of leather ball, hard ball cricket, tennis ball cricket, softball cricket, which is very popular. <clears throat> when I was out in Omaha, in Omaha, Nebraska, when I was attending Creighton University, we had, I was a member of Omaha Cricket Club at the time. and the hardball league, there were only two or three teams who played hardball cricket. Omaha Cricket Club was one of them, Lincoln Cricket Club, which was essentially made up of grad students who were going to the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, and postgraduates. And it, there was a third cricket club in and around both um, cities. I think there might have been 20 to 25 tennis ball, softball cricket teams who are all geared around corporate um, cricket. So you would have ConAgra was headquartered out there. There would, there would be a ConAgra cricket team. And you might have a lot of players, again, who were involved as employees. It might might be Union Pacific who were engineers and they'd play cricket or people in the medical field or TD Ameritrade had a huge uh, complex in Bellevue, Nebraska. So you'd get, again, IT engineers, whatever, um, from TD Ameritrade. And there's other companies out there, Mutual Omaha, all sorts of people. And they would play tennis ball cricket as, as part of this kind of loosely organized corporate cricket competition in a sense. So, and that's just Omaha, Nebraska. So if you consider in 2006, 2007, 2008, there were 500 plus cricketers in Omaha, Nebraska. Okay, then you think about New York City, which has got eight, nine, 10, 11 uh, recognized hardball leagues, including the Commonwealth Cricket League, which is the largest cricket league in America. They've got, I think, close to 100 hardball teams playing in the Commonwealth League. You've got other hotbeds, again, San Francisco, Silicon Valley's driven a humongous growth in cricket. 
in recent years. Los Angeles, Southern California Cricket Association, a huge legacy going back to the 1930s with Hollywood Cricket Club. More recently, Seattle, the growth in cricket in Seattle has exploded in the last 20 years. There wasn't even a cricket league in the Northwest in the 1980s. I, th I think the Northwest Cricket League began in, in 1990 or 1991. And now because of Microsoft and Expedia and whatever other companies are up there, you've got a, a cricket league in the Seattle and Oregon area combined, which has got more than, I think, 30 cricket teams and Microsoft Cricket Club alone comprises of five or six uh, teams they put in the league. So you, that it gives you a sense, people listening, of where cricket is, is growing and where it's populated and where the, the playing base is coming from. That's all men's cricket, okay? Women's cricket, you've got less than 200 players nationwide, females playing cricket, okay? The, the, the playing numbers are dire. And why is that significant? Because every other sport, my uncle mentioned in the context of university sports and high school sports, interscholastic sports in America. Title nine is huge in terms of what impact it has on women's funding in, in particular for women's athletes in high school and university sports. For people listening, whether inside or outside of America who don't know what title nine is, title nine is a famous piece of legislation, I think in the late sixties, that wasn't really intended for sports. It was an educational piece of, of federal legislation that was passed that stated you cannot discriminate on the basis of, of sex uh, when it comes to funding educational initiatives, publicly funded educational initiatives. So this is a government thing. So private schools, you can do whatever the hell you want for a private school, but publicly funded, any state school, government school, public land grant university had to guarantee equal funding for male and female students. Now, originally, this was intended for things like general student population um, scholarships and uh, dorm facilities. So if you had 10 male dorms and one female dorm, that had to change. You had to build nine more female dorms or build enough dorm rooms to house an equal percentage of, of dorms uh, to be provided for female students. But where an unintended consequence that's been a huge positive for women is that it meant that NCAA division one scholarship sports you had to provide an equal number of scholarships for female athletes to male athletes so what did this mean back in the 50s and 60s you might have had 25 men's NCAA division one varsity sports and maybe five female varsity sports with scholarship athletes after title nine came into play you had, you had to have an equal number for both sexes. So that would mean you had to chop some men's sports and add women's sports in order to make sure the funding was equal. Or if you have an instance where you, some universities have a football team and others don't, okay, it means you have to have the same number of scholarship athletes. So you, you might have an uneven number of sports because NCAA football, you might have 90 to 100 scholarship athletes on the football team. And if there's no, obviously, women's football team, how do you balance it out? You might have three or four more women's sports than you have male sports. So you, you might have a situation where you have, for example, you have a men's and women's soccer team, men's and women's basketball team, men's and women's volleyball team, a women's softball team, a men's baseball team. And then you've got track and field for both, tennis for both, cross country for both. But you might only have, if one university has a men's football team, you might only have a women's um, rowing team, or you might only have a women's gymnastics team 
or you might only have uh, a, again, it's a sport that's specifically only for women in order to balance out the equivalent number of right. scholarship athletes. So what ha that has done for women's sports in America is that USA is arguably the number one country in terms of funding sports and, and dedicating financial resources to female athletes much more than any other country you could argue in the cricket ecosystem. Okay. In the context of cricket, what does that mean for people who keep crying about and, and saying, Hey, I'll, you know, what's the fastest way to get cricket to grow in America? How do we get cricket to become an NCAA sport? When, when are we going to get cricketers to get scholarships? Like all these teams and schools that have teams going to college bowl games and football and the NCAA tournament basketball, you know, when is cricket going to get the same publicity and, and um, support to become a scholarship sport in the NCAA, like NCAA football as NCAA basketball. There's two ways to make that happen. You can subtract a men's sport. Okay. You can subtract a men's sport to add men's cricket. So good luck trying to convince a university administrator to subtract men's baseball or men's golf, even, even, you know, the, the lesser lower profile sports, forget, forget men's basketball, men's football. If you're trying to convince somebody to get rid of men's golf, men's tennis, men's rowing Sorry, men's yeah. wrestling those are still legacy sports those are olympic sports okay and it, being an olympic sport still carries a huge amount of weight to convince a university administrator to ax one of those sports and replace it with men's cricket not going to happen a much easier way to make it happen is adding women's cricket at the same time as men's cricket you don't have to subtract the sport in that instance because you're adding women's sport at the same time so the key avenue to grow the popularity of cricket and the popularity of funding in general for cricket in America is to grow women's cricket. If you've only got 200 women's cricketers in America and 200,000 male cricketers in America, that's a big problem, okay? But what's a way to help bridge that gap? I brought this up in a couple different places to, to go back to the original point of the question, recruiting women, female athletes who are in sports where you're really not going to have a professional pathway after graduation. Okay. You have a few high profile examples, like you said, uh, in the American context, Michael Jordan tried out minor league baseball. Okay. Uh, you've, if you go back a little bit further into the late eighties, early nineties, Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders were two famous athletes who played both professional football and, and baseball. And Bo Jackson was the most successful, you could argue, because he was in Major League Baseball All-Star for the Kansas City Royals, and he was also a pro bowler as a running back for the, at the time, the Los Angeles Raiders. But that's very rare. There are some other not-so-successful instances. Drew Henson is one that comes to mind. Drew Henson, people don't know, was a quarterback at Michigan and also played on the baseball team at the University of Michigan he's most famous now for being known as the guy who was competing and pushing Tom Brady aside for, for playing time as a quarterback at the university of missions again, when they were both on the roster together. Okay. So he was a starting quarterback at Michigan. He was also a high draft pick for the New York Yankees. He was lured away by the Yankees. They offered him a six year, $18 million contract to play professional baseball. Okay. He tried out baseball full-time for two or three years 
really never got beyond AAA. He had a very, very brief call. Up. I think he appeared in eight or 10 games for the Yankees, only got one hit in his professional career. Okay, flamed out, decided I'll go back and give football a try. So now he's 25, 26 years old. The Dallas Cowboys uh, traded for his rights. And he uh, played in a handful of games. He only started one game in his professional career. And this was at a time in the mid-2000s where he was competing to be the backup on the Cowboys with Tony Romo. Okay, so now everybody knows Tony Romo is this famous broadcaster, NFL analyst, and he had a very uh, distinguished career as a starting quarterback for the Cowboys. But at the time, they were both backup quarterbacks to Vinny Testaverde. Drew Henson, the Cowboys invested draft picks and money in Drew Henson. And they said, all right, we need to see something out of this guy when Bill Parcells was still the head coach. Vinny Testaverde got injured. Drew Henson got one start in his NFL career, was 4-12 with an interception, and he got yanked at halftime. Okay, so to even at an elite level, it's very, very hard to transition if you spend and dedicated all your time. And, and again, Drew Henson is somebody who growing up played baseball and football his entire life growing up. When he was 21, 22, he was told to pick one, he picked baseball initially, flamed out. Then he tried to go back to football at around age 24, 25. You're losing so much time and against professionals who are dedicating 24 seven to football so right. he's three years behind everybody this doesn't work it's very hard to do and and if you're going to do that you need to do that at age in 18 19 20 21 22 to expect somebody who's a professional baseball player yankees red sox dodgers cubs whatever who again those those examples i gave are guys who played those sports their entire lives growing up and still couldn't make the transition to another sport at an advanced age to expect somebody to pick up cricket brand new in terms of a male um, professional environment sport at age 25, 26, 27 and try and transition. I just, I don't see it happening realistically. Whereas on the women's side, the talent pool is so shallow right. in America. There are loads and loads of athletes who could make that transition. And we already have an example of that. With Erica Rendler. For people who don't know, Erica Rendler was a former NCAA Division I uh, field hockey player at the University of Cal, Cal Berkeley. And eight or nine years after her final game playing field hockey for University of California, she was 29 or 30 years old, discovered cricket on a family trip to Australia. Her sister was engaged and going to be married to an Australian guy. The whole family went to Australia. She discovered cricket in a park, came back to California, Northern California. And I, I, she told the story on my own podcast. I think she, she looked on Craigslist for an ad for um, <laughs> joining a cricket club, found an ad on Craigslist, started to get free uh, coaching lessons. And nine months after she picked up a bat and ball for the first time, she made it into the USA women's national team. Now, at the time, she was 30 years old, nine years removed or 10 years removed from her last competitive NCAA uh, competitive sports match on the field. Mm -hmm. team. But she had the athletic skills growing up. She played softball growing up. She played basketball growing up. She was athletic enough to make the transition to adapt and learn cricket at such a late age. And combined with the fact that the USA talent pool 
is so incredibly shallow. At the time that she did it, there were, I think, 70 or 80 female players in the country. So who is she competing against? Nobody. Okay. At this point in time, if you, if you set your sights as an administrator on recruiting athletes from sports where there's really no professional pathway, meaning um, field hockey, softball, tennis, okay, the only sports in America where there's really a genuine professional pathway for female athletes are basketball in the WNBA. And there have been some uh, fledgling women's professional soccer leagues. And there's also overseas opportunities for professional soccer players for women. Okay, but by and large, you've got a, an awful huge talent pool with softball players, field hockey players, tennis players, bat and ball, stick and ball sports, who when they're 21, 22, fresh out of college graduating, they've still got an opportunity there. They've got the competitive juice that's flowing. They're athletic enough where they can adapt and compete for a spot, not just because they're athletic, but at this point in time, there's no better point in time for them to attempt to make that transition and compete for a spot to play for the USA women's national team because there's nobody standing in their way, relatively speaking. If I think of the, the you know, you brought up Elise Perry before. There are, there are hundreds and hundreds of Elise Perrys all over America who are dual sport, tri-sport athletes who when they turn 21, 22, their dual sport, tri-sport athletic career it's over. It's up in smoke. There's nowhere for them to go. They still want to play sports. If you told them you can go represent USA in a different sport, but you can represent USA and travel the world, who's going to say no to that? And if you look at Erica Rendler, who took nine months, 10 years removed from her last competitive match, was able to essentially walk straight into the national team. How hard, you know, how, how hard would it be and how low is the barrier to entry for right. somebody who's like I say 2021 20, 22 graduating senior okay and I think of just to wrap up this point because I've been going on this for a while um <laughs> there was there was a viral clip there was a viral clip last year the summer of 2021 where this softball player from Florida State called Kaylee Harding okay in the women's college world series it was Florida State against um Oklahoma in the, in the women's college world series for softball and this clip went viral where she was playing right field for Florida state. She was a freshman on the Florida state women's softball team charges in for a, a short fly ball makes a catch on the run and then unleashes this absolute rifle to throw to third base to throw out a runner who was trying to tag from second to third. That kind of athleticism is completely non-existent in the women's cricket right. setup in America. You know, the technical skills you can teach. You can teach. Right. And when I see Erica Rendler, you can teach her to bat and bowl. Erica Rendler could be taught to bat. She's got the hand-eye coordination. She didn't have the technique, okay? You can teach her to bat and bowl. Some of those other things, the agility, the speed, the athleticism that is ingrained in female athletes growing up in America, you can't teach that stuff. Right. And USA and, doesn't and, have that on the cricket scene. And they need that in, in women's cricket in particular. And there's no reason why, you know, dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of, of female athletes should not be recruited to make that transition and to enhance the competitiveness of the talent pool in women's cricket. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, that's where, 
I've always been a little confused because if you look at the athletic talent in the US, it's, you know, unparalleled to, if, when you think about any country really in the world, uh, whether it's track and field, it's swimming, you know, the kind of athletes we've produced uh, are, are just remarkable. So that transition and that, to your point, like teaching those technical skills specific to cricket can certainly be accomplished. Um, but I guess, let me, let me ask you this. So considering how, again, this is more male uh, men's cricket and how USA is uh, trying to attract former players from Asia, South Africa, parts of Europe as well. Um, I guess, is there potential for um, some sort of, you know, reversal of the million dollar arm where if anybody's not seen that movie or uh, then, you know, it was basically a bunch of um, baseball franchises, which went to India and said, we're going to try and find somebody who has a fast arm and try to teach them baseball. Um, I guess, is there potential for um, some of the IPL franchises to maybe find somebody in the U.S.? And maybe it's, it, you know, they start with the women. And, and I guess that's where we'll have to go back to the point that there's no women's IPL. But, but uh, you know, let's say two years down the line, there is a women's IPL. And, you know, Rajasthan Royals, who've always shown interest in women's issues, they say, well, we're going to try and find somebody in, in, the, in the U.S. to, you know, somebody who has either softball background or just athletic background to see if we can train them as uh, cricketers. Do you see that as you know, a possibility. I know you mentioned on the men's side, it's probably a lot more competitive. Well, we've seen that in other sports too. I mean, if there's, if there's a demand and there's money behind it, there's no reason why these things shouldn't be happening. Right. And I mean, if, if I think about on, on the American sports side, okay, this started about 30 years ago teams were looking to improve their special teams and their kicking game. So what do they start to do? San Diego Chargers, I think, were the first ones to do this. They started to look at Australian rules football to recruit the people with the strongest legs to come and become punters and improve their special teams game. So Darren Bennett, I think, was the first one, or one of the first, if not the first. Darren Bennett was a successful Australian rules football player had a strong leg. The San Diego Chargers signed him. He was in his late 20s or early 30s, I think, at the time. And so he may have been kind of on the tail end of his Aussie rules career. Because those guys, uh, I don't know if I'm 100% accurate on this, but they tend to, their careers tend to kind of tail off and retire in their early 30s. It's not like Tom Brady where he's playing until he's 44 or 45, okay. Um, they, they tend to start at 19 or 20 professionally and, and they, if they have a 13 or 14, 15 year career, they're done by the time they're 33, 34. It's not common for them to extend beyond that. So he'd made his career in Australian rules. He was at the tail end of his career. It was a relatively easy payday in a sense, because the highest paid Australian rules football player at the time might've only been getting 200,000 Australian roughly. Okay. Whereas the lowest paid, the league minimum salary in the NFL would have been like 250, $300,000. So even the best player, in Aussie rules football was getting paid less than the last man on the roster in the NFL. So risk reward. Hey, if you're Darren Bennett, why not go have a crack at the NFL? And he became an all pro. He was not just making the roster as a punter, you know, barely compete. He was outstanding. He had a, a very distinguished career as a punter, Darren Bennett. And then that started to pave the way for this whole wave 
of not just in professional um, in the NFL, but all of a sudden now, even in college football, you have got dozens and dozens of punters who are Australian. They actively recruit these guys out of Australia to come to universities in America to be kickers, to be punters. So now it's no longer, uh, let's try and mine a diamond in the rough who's 29, 30, 31, 32, who's kind of on the tail end of their AFL career and try and coerce them to, to keep on kicking in the NFL. No, they're, they're targeting guys who are 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. Get them out of Australia when they're fresh out of high school. Bring them over to, to right. start kicking in, in American college football. Okay, so th that's been successful. You've got the example the opposite way. Australian rules, football has instituted a recruiting program where they scout American college basketball players who they they've got a kind of a, a gauge and a, a formula of what they idealize as the right build and the right athlete um, for what might be successful in Australia. And what do they do? But they don't recruit high end basketball players. They're not recruiting all Americans. They're not targeting guys who would be a first round draft pick in the NBA. That's pointless. No, no guys on the track to be in the NBA is going to, think about oh i mean let me quit my mba ambitions uh, and go go try in australia and play the sport i've never played before but what do they do they recruit guys who are, who are essentially guys off the bench sixth man seventh man eight man limited playing time players who they know don't have a uh, once they graduate college they're not going to be professionals they're not going to the nba they're not right. even going to go to israel or greece or spain and play in, in any overseas european league they're just not going to play Okay, but they're 21, 22 years old. They're still in relatively fit physical condition. And hey, they've got no professional pathway in the NBA or basketball. Maybe we can convince them at age 21, 22 before they get entrenched in a non-athletic professional career if they got a degree in business or engineering or accounting, whatever. Before they do that, let's try and convince them. So AFL holds tryouts in Los Angeles, I think it is every year now. And they invite around 50 basketball players who are roughly between 6'6 and 6'10 guys who again were guys off the bench never really starters okay and they try and find these diamonds in the rough and one of the most prominent examples of that is this uh, player Mason Cox who was a uh, bench warmer essentially on Oklahoma State I think he averaged like six minutes a game his, in his entire career. I think he averaged like 1.8 points or 2.2 points a game, barely, rarely scored, rarely got the ball, was rarely used. But his physical frame, six foot 10, automatically made him one of the tallest, if not the tallest player in the AFL. Okay. And he's not just a six foot 10 kind of gangly awkward stooge he's an athletic six foot ten who can jump you know when he did get in the game what was he asked to do block defend rebound okay so he, he's used to trying to get as high as possible above the rim get rebounds and they said hey we've got the patience and the money to invest in a, in a two-year three-year contract to have you come to australia and within two years he became a starter for I forget if it was Geelong or or Collingwood, I forget which team he's with. I should know this, but he went to a grand final. He was he was uh, his team went to the grand final in I think his second or third year, and he was in the starting lineup for for this AFL team in the grand final, and he's become this phenomenon 
in Australia, you know, the American Mason Cox, Mason six foot 10 Cox. He's got a huge following on Twitter. Um, and it was AFL thinking out of the box. Hey, this guy is not going to go to the NBA, but he's got all the physical attributes and all the skills um, and athletic tools that we're looking for. And we can teach him. This guy never seen a, uh, an Aussie rules football game in his life. Never played Aussie rules. Didn't know anything about the rules. Didn't know what the hell an Aussie rules football looked like. They said, we don't care. We will teach you. And within two, three years, he's become a genuine star in AFL. So there is capacity to do that in cricket. It's a matter of where do you focus that? This idea of getting, um, you know, Bryce Harper is not going to go pursue a career in his uh, offseason in cricket. Okay. Uh, Jacob deGrom, you know, a Cy Young Award winner for the Mets. He's not going to go uh, pursue uh, six months in the offseason trying to bowl 90 miles an hour for Team USA. You, you can't recruit those guys. It's pointless um, because they're right. getting compensated. Again, the compensation factor, Jacob DeGrom is on a whatever, $30 million a year contract. Um, yep. You know, whereas the, the, the highest paid player in the IPL is getting $2 million. And realistically, if you sign these guys on a development contract, what would they be getting? $20,000, $30,000? Um, right. That's pointless. And, and you, need to be, you need to be recruiting guys who are, again, like I said, recent graduates in, in sports, maybe they were, you know, all conference player in a particular sport, but they're not all American and they're not going to go professional. So they've got some athletic talent. It's a, it's a very tricky kind of gray area. They've got to be good, but not too good. Right. You know, and you're, that's, you're almost, that's where you can target trying to it. Take like the, the just below the cream of the crop that way there's, there's enough talent for them to be competitive while you know, not enough for them to be persuaded somewhere else. And, and I think that compensation brings up another question. Like, I, again, I mentioned, assuming in two years we'll have a women's IPL, Rajasthan Royals has a women's team. All of these are, you know, uh, assumptions which we have no idea when they'll come true, but let's say they, they do. Uh, even if they do come true and they decide to come to, um, you know, some of the softball teams across the U.S. to try and find these talents, at the end of the day, women's players get paid, uh, even the best ones get paid for a two-month tournament, maybe $20,000, uh, maybe even less. You know, I, I don't remember the exact numbers from the 100, but I remember reading somewhere around that number. And, uh, you know, while they might say, okay, great, I'll, I'll do that for three months, if there's only a couple of such tournaments around the world, they can't really sustain an athlete's, you know, lifestyle on $40,000, $50,000 in the U.S. So either they move to some other country where they can, or you have to basically find a way to make, Amer you know, them playing for U.S. Uh, somehow, somehow sustainable. And, and the other part about this, too, is to take into consideration why it's so difficult. You're, again, you're looking for fringe players or players who are in sports who are close to the best at, at what they were but don't have a professional pathway, but you have to keep in mind these players, you know, whether it's softball or field hockey or tennis, or um, even if you look at a uh, NCAA women's soccer player or, or could be a basketball player, one who might not go to the WNBA, but is still very good. All conference players, something like that, right? The huge obstacle in a, in a different development sense is convincing these players to come and try this out 
in cricket systems, and this includes the USA, where the facilities are not good. And, and it's not just the money is not good. You talk about, you know, the best played players in, in the women's hundred and some of the other competitions might get $20,000. Who's going to jump at that? You know, uh, if it was $100,000 or $200,000, oh, yeah, tell me what this cricket thing is. Show me what this bat is. Oh, this ball looks nice. Okay. Uh, hey, their ears will perk up. Their eyes will open wider. Okay. $20,000, I don't know. Um, but the other issue is these are, these are athletes, especially in the women's sports development system, the NCAA um, system in the pathway, who are being exposed to the highest of high-end elite training and arena facilities, not just in America, but arguably in the world for women's sports, okay? These are, for anybody who's, who's ever been to a campus athletic department, um, I worked in the Creighton Athletic Department all four years when I was there. And our athletic facility was mediocre by college standards, but it was still better than most of the things I'd seen in my life, okay? And the men's uh, basketball team is playing in a, in a 19,000 seat facility that's used now quite regularly every other year as a first and second round site or a regional site for the NCAA um, basketball tournament. Okay. Um, and the practice facilities, whatever, they're quite good. You go to it, you go to University of Texas, University of Michigan, any of these state schools where you've got a football team, which basically supports the funding of the rest of these gargantuan athletic complexes which are used as the, the recruiting mechanisms uh, to, to try and lure athletes in. Okay. And the fo football basically subsidizes everything else. So if you've got a really grand football facility, you're probably going to have good basketball, good swimming, good track and field, good everything else facilities. Okay. You go to a university of Texas, you go to an Oklahoma state, you go to a university of Michigan, university of North Carolina, UCLA, whatever. It's an arms race. These universities are spending hundreds and hundreds of million dollars on their athletic facilities, okay? And it's not just the men, the women get to use these facilities. So you take a, a female athlete in America who's getting access to not just your game day venue, but your gym, your weightlifting facilities, your cafeteria facilities. The athletes, generally speaking, at these universities eat in a separate cafeteria than all the rest of the students on campus and they get the best food and the best chefs to cook them food daily. So they're getting the best nutrition, better nutrition than everybody else on campus. That's just included as part of their tuition. Okay. You're getting access to all of that. The four years you're on campus as a female athlete, you leave. And What's one of the obstacles to try and get somebody to play cricket as, as a woman in the U.S. and if you're trying to get them to transition or somewhere else? The cricket facilities in the U.S., by and large, are substandard. And, it's, and for women, the cricket facilities are almost non-existent. You're playing on garbage facilities. Is Your introduction to cricket as a woman, you're not going to the stadium in Waterhill as your first introduction to cricket if you're a woman in America wanting to play cricket. No, you're playing on some multi-purpose garbage soccer field with six inch high grass and an artificial wicket. How is that supposed to excite somebody and really lure them in and, Oh yeah, I signed me up for this. Um, <laughs> and, and, and how, how different is that overseas? If you're trying to recruit somebody in England to transition from, if you're, if you're a hundred franchise, if you're a women's hundred franchise 
and you're trying to recruit somebody, like say, say a graduating senior from a softball program, University of Oklahoma, Florida State, whatever, softball power, right? And you're trying to recruit them for the 100. You better take them to Lourdes and you better take them to the Indoor Nets at Lourdes as their introductory experience. Because if you take them to some podunk club facility on the outskirts of London and say, oh, this is where we train, they're not going to sign up for that. This, this, is your, this is your elite training complex? you know <laughs> and 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 where do you where where is where is our you know where is our training you know where's our training facility in terms of where we eat before we train you know what where, what's the training regimen the nutrition regimen oh um you know wagamama you can go to wagamama or nando's what <laughs> i thought we had a chef at at the university of texas austin who would cook everything uh on demand for us what are you talking about we got to go to wagamama what, what the hell is yeah, wagamama? i mean i think that's that's a great point i i hadn't thought about it that way but uh, growing up in India, I played cricket and obviously I didn't play at any serious level, but when we traveled, it was just a given that the washrooms were going to be shitty, the hotels were going to be shitty, it was a budget trip that the coaches and the academies were organizing, and we just went because we really loved the game, and when I moved here, I went to Indiana University's mini gymnasium, and I was blown away, and then somebody told me this is not the real gymnasium, <laughs> they told me the, the real gymnasium is the other side of the campus, and this is this is where the, the podunk students get used. You should yeah, see the one that the basketball so. players get to use. <laughs> right. And and so that I think that's a great point. I, I don't think we think about it in that sense. We keep thinking about, oh, there's talent. Where can we put the money? How can we make it profitable? But yeah, the, the baseline facilities are definitely a big, big difference. And and you touched on an important point also you touched on. You were willing to put up with those things because you love the game. You're a diehard, you grew up with it. It's it's a passion, right? Similarly, I love cricket. Okay. Anybody who loves cricket, you're willing to kind of look past certain things. Right. And uh, because I love cricket so much, I'm willing to drive three hours across Nebraska into Iowa to try and play a game against somebody in Des Moines or somebody in, in Cedar Rapids, because that's the closest game. I'm willing to do that. Okay. And, and it's not just driving three hours to Cedar Rapids. We're driving to three hours to Cedar Rapids to play on a pile of shit with six inch high grass, artificial wicket, um, which it could have been rained on the night before and you on even bounce, you could get your head taken off by a rising delivery, right? On an artificial wicket. But I love cricket. I want to subject myself to that because I'm a diehard. Somebody who's new to the game, who's not really passionate about it, who's not a diehard, who needs to be cajoled and convinced really hardcore. If those are the things that are their introductory experience, are you, are you fucking out of your mind? Three hours to drive <laughs> for a game? on a dog shit facility are you fucking nuts for free i'm not even getting paid for this get the fuck out of here <laughs> so it all starts with making the game attractive in the first place right because like for all those reasons that you mentioned that could throw off potentially interested um people you know whoever want to take up the game or just interested in watching the game so i feel like and i know people have differing opinions on this but something like cricket and the olympics right this is like an age-old debate uh, there are people both for it, people against it. Uh, personally, I feel like Olympics puts things in the spotlight. I was shocked when I found out that skateboarding is an actual uh, Olympic competition, and I thought cricket yeah, couldn't baby. get into <laughs> cricket couldn't get into the Olympics. But this skateboarding, does... not just skateboarding, but you're gonna have rock climbing and you're gonna have break dancing. Right, as, right. Uh, and what sports. is that horse step thingy? I forget the name. Uh, <laughs> Dressage. Dressage, that's the one. Um, so uh, when you look at these Olympics competitions, I, I'm happy for them, but 
cricket cannot get into this and cricket is one of the oldest sports in the world like i i get it you know the, the whole issue of time but then you have t20 and there's a way to make this work and i think that can make a difference to american audiences because a lot of americans don't I, this is my personal opinion but they don't follow sports other than baseball basketball and american football unless the olympics comes on and i think cricket if it wasn't the olympics that would add a lot more visibility and could bring funding too. You know, we're talking about the NCAA. I think this is potential avenue to bring more funding, and even for you know countries like the U.S. and Argentina in general, this would help a lot. Yes and no. It would help raise the profile, generally speaking, mm-hmm. because I I know you talk about yeah, most Americans love the big four sports, so they pay attention to the big four sports only. So. And that might not even be all four big sports. So they might only watch baseball and football, or they might only watch basketball and football, or it might only be ice hockey and baseball, whatever, right? Um, and some people like golf and some people like soccer on top of that. And but you have some people who like horse racing and golf and tennis and they'll watch the Grand Slams and whatever else, right? But when the Olympics comes around, you know, I don't know anybody who's a curling aficionado, personally speaking. <laughs> um, but Hey, when curling's on during the Olympics, people watch it hardcore. I don't know anybody who I would consider a swimming aficionado by any stretch of the imagination, but who is one of the most adored American athletes of the last quarter century, Michael Phelps, right? Yeah, because when the Olympics comes on, Americans or any country, we always say, oh, Americans love a winner. Well, who doesn't love a winner? Find me a country that doesn't love a winner, for God's sake, right? But when the Olympics come on, you know, you see a gold medalist, and that means, hey, they get on the, the Wheaties box, and they get the other endorsements, and they become a, a huge celebrity. And whether that's Michael Phelps, or Simone Biles, or Gabby Douglas, I mean, Gabby Douglas, for God's sakes, I think she won her gold medal in the gymnastics in 2012. And she was the individual all-around gold medal winner. So before Simone Biles, there was there was Nastya Lukin, I think in 2008 or maybe 2012, I can't remember. And then Gabby Douglas in 2012, Simone Biles in 2016. Um, and so Gabby Douglas is nine years ago. They were still running. Um, there was a Smoothie King commercial campaign that was running during the Olympics this past summer with Gabby Douglas. She was the chief endorser. So nine years after her Olympic career is essentially her gold medal um, explosion where she was a superstar and a darling uh, for America. She's still a a visible, prominent endorser, okay? Um, Sean Johnson, gold medalist, was on, you know, they they go on Dancing with the Stars and all that, that. Apollo Ona, you know, gold medalist in uh, short track speed skating, went on Dancing with the Stars and you, you get these things, right? Um, and it's short track speed skating, for God's sake, gymnastics, swimming. These are sports that are not big four sports. They're not followed around. But if you go to USA and the Olympics, you win a gold medal, opens up a zillion doors, right? So just as a byproduct of being part of the Olympics, again, it doesn't matter if it's curling or skateboarding or snowboarding. I mean, Sean White. So you're saying it would be just seasonal interest. This is just well, no, but, no, but but it raises the profile. So Sean White again, Sean White, a snowboarder, skateboarder. I think he did skateboarding too, but in the X Games. But Sean White definitely snowboarding. Again, kind of rose to prominence through the X Games, and then the X Games became so popular that they kind of 
spawn more interest, offshoot interest to, to push for support to get these sports, including in the Olympics. And then Sean White becomes, I'm pretty sure Sean White was a gold medalist for America after being a, a superstar in the X Games. Okay, Sean White becomes a gold medal snowboard winner. And um, that just grows his fame, grows his popularity. So the, the point is these, these non-traditional sports, sports you wouldn't expect people to care about. Yeah, for, for 17 days, every four years, people care about it. And if they know they're bringing good um, goodwill and good reputation, enhancing the reputation of, of USA by winning a gold medal, nobody gives a shit if you're a gold medalist in tiddlywinks or wrestling <laughs> or, um, you know, swimming or, or soccer or any other sport, basketball, you know, the people who are on, on the, the gold medalists on the USA men's basketball team or the USA women's basketball team for that matter every year. Generally speaking, in the context of the Olympics, does anybody really care too much about them compared to other gold medalists? Like Michael Phelps has just as much notoriety, if not more fame, for winning his gold medals than LeBron James or Kobe Bryant did for winning any of their gold medals, right? Right. Um, and so, I, I, you know, in, in that context, again, it, you know, Rulon Gardner, one of my favorite Olympians of all time in my lifetime. Rulon Gardner, who, for people who don't know, was a, a Greco-Roman wrestler for USA in the late 90s, early 2000s, I believe. And he went up against, in either the semifinals or the gold medal match, this Russian, Alexander Carolin, who hadn't lost a wrestling match in like 11 years, was a, a multiple gold medalist, heavy favorite. And Rulon Gardner, this farmer from Idaho or Montana, one of the two upsets him in the Olympics, wins the gold medal. Incredible upset. Ruan Gardner becomes um, this darling in America. His story just exploded in the pre Twitter era. He went viral. Uh, you know, if there is such a thing as going viral before Twitter and before social media, he was, he was beloved. Ruan Gardner in wrestling, a sport that nobody watches except for, you know, 17 days every four years. So there's no reason why cricket could not capitalize on that in the american market and the cricketers would benefit from huge ancillary exposure just by rubbing shoulders in the olympic village and being part of the whole olympic environment if they're televising wrestling and they're televising skateboarding and they're they're televising you know olympic tiddlywinks or whatever the hell sport you want to be part of the olympics uh, breakdancing they're going to have to televise olympic cricket too it's going to get televised and people watch right. if people can get into curling and people can get into wrestling. Again, nobody nobody knows the ins and outs of curling, but when it comes on every four years, everybody's glued to it. Oh my God, this is riveting stuff. I'm into the curling. Go USA, go. Um, there's no reason why they wouldn't do the same for cricket. Now, what needs to change from a development standpoint in order for USA to really be successful and to make it happen, you need to really focus on grassroots and get people roped into supporting the American raised American developed athletes for a number of reasons. One, for one thing, I mean, you talked about, you know, big four sports culture and people who are hardcore basketball fans and football fans, whatever starts off in my opinion with college sports. Some guys go on to the pros, some guys don't, but if you graduate, you know, um, my was talking about going to Indiana at Indiana, you know, years and years later, Isaiah Thomas is still, 
revered and, and treated like a god at Indiana because he oh, yeah. helped win a national title, right? And other guys who have been part of Indiana basketball teams who've won national championships are, you know, you go on, you go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, they're treated like gods. Everybody in my family, except for me, I went to Creighton. Everybody else in my family went to Boston College. Okay, Boston College, my dad, my brother, everybody went to Boston College. Anytime we'd go up to Boston College and Doug Flutie was on campus, like time stood still. Holy shit, Doug Flutie, Doug, you know, Doug Flutie, Doug Flutie, you know, Flutie magic, you know, Hail Mary, 1984 Heisman Trophy winner, Doug Flutie, the Hail Mary against Miami. Oh my God, you know, Doug Flutie, the Doug Flutie. And Doug Flutie had a fairly distinguished NFL career, professional football career, played for the Bills, played for the Chargers, played for the Patriots, played for the Bears, I think too. Had the most success with the Bills and the Chargers kind of in his second kind of wave of his career. He went to Canada, he played in the CFL for quite a number of years, won a number of Grey Cups in Canada. And then he came back to play in the NFL towards the end of his career. But nobody cares in the grand scheme of things about his NFL career. But if you go to Boston College and Doug Foodie's around, oh my God, like he's, he gets, you know, people just go nuts. Same thing at Auburn, you know, Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson goes back to Auburn and it's like, oh my God, Bo Jackson, 85 Heisman Trophy winner, time stands still. Um, and you, you do that, you know, Ricky Williams at Texas, you can go on and on down the list. Anybody who, I remember at, at Creighton, when my last year at Creighton, we, we hosted, it was the first time that Creighton hosted a first and second round at the, um, of the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship. And one of the eight teams that came to Omaha for the first round site was UNLV. We had Kansas, Kansas State, USC, um, I forget who the other teams were, Wisconsin. UNLV was there. Larry Johnson was in the crowd with the US, uh, UNLV traveling fan section. Larry Johnson was part of the national championship team they had in 1990. And oh my God, before the game, now during the game, they left him alone. They let him watch the game. But during, before the game and at halftime, Larry Johnson had a nonstop line of people asking for autographs and selfies and he, no, this is, this is 28 years after he was part of a national championship and he's still a God for anybody associated with UNLV. So you need that grassroots culture where people, you know, people have a great affinity and a connection with people who are from their hometown, hometown, went to their high school, went to the university. I'll give you another example, Rick Porcello, who is a Cy Young award winner with the Boston Red Sox. He's had a fairly lengthy pro baseball career, started with the Detroit Tigers. Rick Porcello went to my high school, Seton Hall Prep in West Orange, New Jersey. He's probably now our most famous alumni. The high school baseball field, he donated, I don't know how much money, but now the high school baseball field is named Rick you know, Porcello Field at Seton Hall Prep um, because he donated, he's, he's had earned more than $100 million during his major league baseball career, right? But when he comes back to Seton Hall Prep, he's, he's like Rick Porcello, he's one of us. Like people go to him and it's like exciting to see Rick Porcello and, and there's some pride associated with that. USA national team, that environment is very limited. It doesn't really exist too much because the majority of the players who play for USA, they get into the team are expats who played maybe, maybe sometimes former test cricketers from the West Indies, guys who played IPL in India, first class cricket in India, Pakistan, whatever. People don't have that affinity. They don't have that connection because they were not part of the culture growing up. Whereas somebody like, say, for example, Stephen Taylor, who did grow up in Florida was part of the Academy uh, community in, in Florida cricket 
there is a much stronger affinity and connection, I would argue, for Steven Taylor than there is for other players in the national team, simply because a lot of people feel like Steven Taylor, he's, he's, we take pride. People in Florida, you go to meet them, they talk, they take pride. Steven's one of us. We, you know, Steven, one of us made it to USA to play for Team USA. You're not going to, you need those Steven Taylors if cricket is in the Olympics because of simply the rules and the eligibility restrictions for the Olympics. You have to be a citizen to play for your country in the Olympics. So at this current point in time, you know, there's also cricket in the Olympics, 2024 T20 World Cup. If there was cricket in the Olympics in 2024, 2028, the squad that would be picked for USA to play in an ICC event would be wildly different than the squad that USA would be eligible and allowed to pick to play in an Olympic event. Okay, and so it would look very bad if USA continued on this path, which they're kind of going on and has always been part of their history in men's cricket anyway. They're not really doing that in women's cricket. Women's cricket, heavily dominated by players who are um, born, brought up, and developed in the USA. But the men's cricket has always had this fallback habit of waiting for a guy to have his career kind of flame out in India or Pakistan or Jamaica or Guyana, move to USA. Now, Xavier Marshall is a good example of that. More recently, Owen McChand is an example of that. Okay, come to USA and their career flamed out. They weren't good enough to stick around in, with, with Jamaica, or with the West Indies or in India. So you're getting a second choice, a third choice, essentially player from the West Indies or from India, who is now your, your first choice pick for the USA. You really need first choice American developed players to be your first choice picks for USA. You're never going to, your third choice player from India, Unmuk Chand, if Unmuk Chand gets picked for USA and he was a third choice or fourth choice pick in the Indian system, how would you ever expect a team full of Unmuk Chands to beat India if USA ever faced India in, in a World Cup, right? And it's never right. going to happen, logically yeah. speaking. So you need American developed players, first choice American athletes, one, just from a competitive standpoint, you can't be relying on second, third choice players who flame out in other countries to be your first choice players. You need to develop your own first choice players from a competitive standpoint to be able to stand toe to toe with the other countries at an ICC event. But more importantly, if cricket gets into the Olympics, it would be very embarrassing. I would argue for USA to a month earlier in an ICC event, have a team with, you know, say for example, Unmuk Chand, Sarbanichavalkar, Xavier Marshall, et cetera, et cetera. None of whom are American citizens. Monang Patel, not an American citizen. Okay. And then a month later, the Olympics begins and you have to drop nine or 10 out of your 14 man squad because they're not citizens and you have to pick an entirely separate squad for the Olympics. It presents a very um, awkward image in terms of how cricket is truly developing or not developing in America. So and Peter, if, if cricket's going to be in the Olympics, they've got eight years to change that. They got to start now. They can't screw around and wait until um, 2028 to start. They've got to start now in, in 2022. So, so as we, as we wrap up, I want to kind of ask one question by almost like going back to square one, so to speak, uh, because there are obviously two aspects to this, right? One is a developmental aspect, and then there is just the audience engagement. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious if there's even a space for cricket uh, right now, because, you know, the four major sports, does one sport need to replace uh, do, do they need to make space for cricket or do you think that's even like a because we are we've been talking about this and this has been going on for the last few decades where 
they're trying to make inroads. Cricket is trying to make inroads in the United States. But is that even logical, given all that you mentioned so far? Do you think that it's realistic of cricket kind of making a space for itself? I know some people argue that because there are so many sports in the U.S. and the market is flooded, it makes it incredibly difficult for cricket to carve out its own niche and get publicity and get attention for people to start caring about the game. I argue consistently the exact opposite. The fact that there are so many sports indicates that the appetite is insatiable for sports in the American community. And doesn't matter what it is, if there's good quality on display, people will consume it. Again, I, I go back to the example of, I, I think Mayank may have kind of slightly kind of insinuated or referenced it, um, discussing about how I got into cricket and, you know, what, why the quality matters. And I've told the story a number of times, but the duration element is completely over-exaggerated in terms of being emphasized by why somebody would get into cricket. I got into cricket through test cricket, 2005 Ashes. Why? Because the quality of play was so high. Okay. That series, what was my introduction? And I, this is a theme again, we've gone over and over. What's your first introduction to cricket? How are you going to get somebody hooked? Whether as a player or as a fan, you want to be introduced to the best. If I was introduced to cricket, if my introduction to cricket for a friend who was trying to get me hooked was to come out to um, Omaha Cricket Club, where the grass was, you know, again, six inch high artificial wicket with 22 guys who were all on their own, no fans in the bleachers, nobody cares about us. And they, oh, this, this game is so amazing. It's, this, it's the second most popular game in the world. More than a billion people love cricket. Oh, you're going to love it. And they bring me to Omaha Cricket Club where it's six inch high grass, nobody around except for the 22 people. And you're, are you really trying to convince me this is the second most popular game in the world with this facility? And <laughs> around, give me a break. Who are you kidding? But I got introduced to cricket by seeing on TV. I was in Australia, but I was watching the 2005 Ashes on TV, seeing Lords packed, Edge Best packed, Old Trafford packed, watching Shane Warne, Adam Gilchrist, Ricky Ponting, Matthew Hayden, Andrew Flintoff, Marcus Jaskothic, Michael Vaughn, Steve Harmison, on and on and on. Okay, Ian Bell, right? Kevin Peterson, his debut series. Okay, that was my introduction. I was seeing the best of the best in that era. Glenn McGraw, the list goes on and on. Damian Martin. I saw elite. Didn't matter that the game was going for five days. I was watching the best of the best. If you tell somebody that you, if, if somebody's new coming to America, let's, let's flip it around, go the opposite way. Somebody's coming into America from India and I say, Oh, you'll love the NFL. Why? Oh, because it's three hours. It's, it's just like a T20 match. You love T20 <laughs> cricket, don't you? It's three hours. Well, you'll love the NFL because it's three hours. Oh, oh, okay. If you say so, well, well who am I, who am I going to watch to get me to, to love this, uh, american football thing you're talking about it's three hours oh I'll, I'll take you to a game between the new york jets and the miami dolphins you'll love it and then the your you know your friend gets there jets and dolphins these they, these teams fucking suck they're playing for to be to decide who's gonna be the number one draft pick next year i don't know oh if, okay i guess 
Come watch the Jacksonville Jaguars. You'll love it. Jacksonville Jaguars, New York. It's three hours, but it's three hours. You love T20, right? It's three hours. Why don't you like this? It's three hours. Because those teams suck. If you tell them, hey, you'll, you'll love the NFL. How am I going to love the NFL? What, what game should I watch? Oh, I think you'll love the NFL. If you watch the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills in the AFC Divisional Playoff, I think you'll really love it. Why? Not because it's three hours, but because Pat Mahomes and Josh Allen are going to go toe-to-toe and the game is going to go down to the last play in regulation, and then it's going to go to overtime, and it's going to be one of the greatest playoff games of all time. Oh, Jesus Christ. Where, have I, where has this NFL been all my life? Oh, my God. You know, is, is every game like this? Holy shit. You know, 42-36 went into overtime. I'm like at 25 points in the last two minutes. Oh, my God. It's just like one of the greatest games ever. Did you see Mahomes? Did you see Josh Allen? Oh, my God. Was, oh, my God. It worked, you know, why don't you introduce this to me sooner? Yeah, people get hooked when it's the best of the best. But if you tell people, you'll love T20 cricket because it's three hours, and then you show them garbage for three hours, nobody's going right. to like it, whether that's yeah. T20 cricket or any other sport for that matter. So, yeah, so the, the point is the quality is what matters, okay? If the quality is good, there's no reason why, why cricket can't fit in to the rest of the sports ecosystem. Again, the duration argument, I, I never buy into. If you're watching the best of the best, I will watch – Virat Kohli for three hours or one day or five days. If I know I'm watching the best of the best, if it's Steve Smith or Pat Cummins or KL Rahul or Kagiso Rabada, I don't care if it's T20 one day or test match. If I know I'm watching the best of the best at this point in time, I don't care how long it lasts. I just want to know that the quality is good. If you introduce somebody to cricket by, you know, instead of a T20, you know, a couple of these going, you know, the, well, at the time of recording, anyway, the couple of these, you know, the T20 between West Indies and England, Robin Powell scoring a century, where you've got arguably the, one of the best limited oversides in the world in England in recent years against West Indies, who won two T20 World Cups in 2012, 2016, Robin Powell, century, Nicholas Bourne, and all that. That'll get somebody hooked. If you introduce them, the quality is what matters. So, you know, Usain Bolt, there are people who will pay $500, $1,000 to go to the Olympics for a track and field meet to watch Usain Bolt run for 10 seconds, 9.5 seconds, to be accurate. I've never heard somebody say, oh, shit. I can't believe I just paid $500 to watch a guy run for 10 seconds. <laughs> my my, The value of my ticket was completely... Uh, it, not commensurate to to the length of yeah. what i expected to pay for you, you just saw the best of the best you saw the fastest man in the world said it set a world record what are you complaining about nobody nobody has ever complained about that it's the quality that matters so if a quality product is presented you will get american fans hooked the, the issue i have with how major league cricket at its current state is being pushed and promoted i'll never forget one of the press conferences i think it was the same press conference where this um air hogs stadium acquisition was announced parag marate who doubles as an executive vice president for the san francisco 49ers and is also the board chairman for usa cricket starts talking about when all these people are on this conference call about you know this is going to be one of the crown jewel stadium venues for major league cricket. You know, oh, why should people, why should the Americans, why should the Dallas media get into major league cricket and get behind this franchise? And he starts talking about, he goes, um, 
well, Americans love being number one. American loves, Americans love the best of the best in sports. And I should know that, you know, because I've been with the San Francisco 49ers and we've been a multiple Super Bowl winning franchise and people love supporting the best. NFL is the best league in the world. I don't know if you said those exact words and made the 49ers reference, but you get the idea. He's, he's talking about the best of the best. America loves the best. Number one, number one. And, you know, we want to give them the best in any sport, no matter what. Americans love the best and they'll get behind the best and they want to be number one. And they love gold medalists in the Olympics, blah, blah, blah. Some of the things we've been talking about. And then he says, in the, in the same paragraph of train of thought, we're hoping that Major League Cricket will be the number two league in the world behind the IPL. Already now, for second place. <laughs> you're already promoting that you're going to be a second rate league. Yeah. How do you expect Americans to get behind a league when from the start, part of your promotion scheme is to talk it up as the second best league? Who's going to get behind that? Right. And again, the draw cards. IPL, yeah, we know IPL is the number one league. Why is the number one league? Because that's where the money is. Okay. That's where the overseas stars go. That's where they get lured in. That's where the eyeballs are. And who's who's driving that? Most, you know, uh, majority of, of the driver of that is the Indian players, the Indian stars, MS Tony, Rod Cole. They're the drivers of that. And the BCCI protects that unique selling point by denying non-objection certificates for any of these guys to participate in overseas leagues that'll drive the value of the IPL down. Okay. That's makes that special. And there are some people, I don't know what planet they're living on. There are some people who honestly believe major league cricket is going to be the exception to the rule. Oh, uh, you know, we, we've talked to some, we think we're going to get, we've got the connections. We'll, t- we'll, we'll talk, you know, Hey, KKR is on board as an investor in major league cricket. We've already got the connections, you know, We've got KKR on board. We'll talk to them. We're pretty confident we'll get the Indian players to get the NOCs. They'll yeah. come to Major League Cricket. That's oh, so they're going to give a big middle finger to the Big Bash. They're going to give a big middle finger to the CPL and the 100 and the PSL. They'll give a middle finger to all these other leagues, but but they'll reach out and give a hearty handshake to Major League Cricket. And India is going to let their guys play in Major League Cricket, but not all these other leagues. Really believe that. Oh, and, that, and that's why Major League Cricket is going to be such a great league because we're going to get Indian players. Yeah. And oh, what if you don't get those Indian players? Oh, it'll still be good. We'll get all these, you know, we'll get all these other players from South Africa or New Zealand or Australia. You know, they'll, yeah, they'll come. Oh, really? They're going to they're gonna pick Major League Cricket over the 100 or, you know, any other CPL, whatever, these other established con- competitions, whatever. I don't know. But, you know you, again, going back to one of the earliest points, where, you know, the CPL left America. 700 people showed up to watch Steve Smith and Andre Russell. Okay. The only proven... Um, ticket seller in the U.S. is when India comes or an Indian-themed uh, event, you know, Satchin with the Cricket All-Stars. So if you don't have Indian players, okay, we know, I, again, Will TV, 250,000 subscribers between Houston and Dallas. Not one person shows up to USA Championships in Texas, okay? And yet they're talking, oh, no, but they'll come out to Major League Cricket when there's no Indian players involved? Really? Oh, good luck with that. I'll believe when I see it. That's my response. Whenever somebody's, oh, Major League Cricket's going to be this rousing success because X, Y, and Z money invested, KKR is an owner. Shah Rukh Khan is going to be in the owner's box. Oh, people are going to pay uh, $100 a ticket to go um, instead of, they're going to have their backs to the field of play. They're going to turn their backs to the 22 yards 
and I'm going to spend three hours watching Sharu Khan in the owner's box. Oh, that that's a great value for my uh, price of admission. Oh yeah, that'll that'll sell tickets. Really, all kind of yeah, good 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 luck with that. So if if you can't get any players to play, the evidence is there. It's going to be an uphill battle for any initiative to succeed, and that's what Major League Cricket is up against. Well. You know, Peter, first of all, thank you so much for your time. And I think we had a very extensive kind of look at all that's going on around cricket here in the United States. And I feel like we started this conversation in a place of cynicism and we end with cautious optimism. You know, as long as we can put or prioritize quality over every other concern, I think there is a chance. There is a chance. It's a small one, but there is a chance for cricket. So hey, content is king. Just remember, yeah. content is king, marketing is queen. Content is right. king. If content isn't there, <laughs> good luck. Right. So, well, well, let's hope. We can only hope that uh, things move in the right direction. But Peter, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Please do come back. And I think there's just so much. We barely scratched the surface, I feel. <laughs> and we went on for a long time. Uh, but please do come back. We really appreciate it. Benny, I warned you. Before we hit the record button, you said 45 minutes. I said, good luck keeping me at 45 minutes. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. Not so next, we'll plan better next time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Benny. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for this episode of The Last Wicket. Thanks again to Peter for coming on and sharing his perspectives on cricket in the United States. You can find him on Twitter at Peter De La Pena. And don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. Once again, check out our nomination at sportspodcastawards.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, do let a friend know, rate and subscribe on your platform of choice, follow us on your social media feeds, and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening. And from all of us here at The Last Wicket, stay safe and stay healthy.